You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. In our last episode, Danny Hayes shared yarns from his childhood on cattle stations and some of the things he's learnt from his 30-year career as a mustering pilot. In this episode, Danny recounts some of the hairy situations he's found himself in while flying. Situations that only experience, and nothing short of good luck, has allowed him to be here and speak about them. I want to take a moment and acknowledge that our community has lost too many people through helicopter mustering accidents. And safety while flying is something that both Danny and I take very seriously. So while he recounts these stories with a laugh, we want you to know that we are not trying to ignore the seriousness of each incident. At the time of recording, I'm 34 weeks pregnant and my partner is also a helicopter mustering pilot. So you can imagine the anxiety these yarns gave me. I hope you enjoy this episode and if you take anything away... It's that safety is everything. Now, your time flying, so just over 30 years you've been in the sky, I was hesitant to ask you um, because I don't want to jinx anyone or give anyone bad luck, but you've had a few moments, shall we call them, or incidences or adventures, I guess, um, eight of them at, at current count, and hopefully it'll stay eight for the rest of your life and there won't be any more. I, I wasn't sure if I should ask you this because we're about to talk about the eight times that you have um, – hmm landed a helicopter unintentionally, shall we put it that way, as I'm sitting here eight months pregnant and the father of my child is a helicopter pilot. So I don't know if I really want to be hearing these stories, knowing that he's up in the air today. Uh, And worst comes to worst, you will have to go get in your helicopter and take me to the hospital. (laughs) But I'm going to hope that it doesn't come to that. Tell me about, I guess, you know, from from when you started flying to – I guess just a, a bit about your timeline. You are quite well renowned in this part of the world as a very experienced, very astute helicopter pilot. Um, I love the yeah. look on your face and you're like, am I really? I'm like, yeah. no, no, I've heard it from several people. You're a good, you're a very good pilot. But I guess maybe tell us about some of the good pilot things and then some of the, uh, unintentional moments you've had. Um, probably, uh, the unintentional moments are always like, a failure, and if you fly long enough, you're going to have failures. Um, like belts, I've had two sets of belts destroy themselves on me. Um, there was a bad series of belts at one stage, and they were autos to the ground. Um, so what's an auto? Uh, engine failure. So yeah, you're basically gliding to the ground. You what to the ground? Sorry, gliding. Gliding. Okay. So is that do you cut? So the engine cuts out. You don't have to. Because is is that something you learn at like, well, yeah. like pilot school about how to how to 
if the engine cuts out, how to try and land yep. somewhat alive. Yeah. And what did the belts do that failed? Uh, the drive belts between the engine and the the engine and your flywheel for the for the main rotors on your tail rotor. Okay, so yeah. the the engine and the rotors stop talking to each other because the belt's gone to put. Yeah. And then you've got nothing to keep the engine. Well, then you've got nothing to keep the rotors going. Oh. I'm like, yeah. I love that you also just said, you know, if you fly long enough, you're going to have failures. I'm like, okay, Will's been flying for five <laughs> years, hasn't really had a failure yet, which means it's coming. And I just don't want to be here for that. Yeah. Uh, what, um, what happens, like, how how quickly after it happens do you think you realise that's happened? Like, what's your what's reaction it? time? Um, had a couple of bad things. One of, the, one of my first crashes was a real bad one because the engine didn't stop. It starved. So with when you hear the engine stop, you know it's on. The engine didn't stop. I just kept losing power and I had full throttle and the low RPM horn was on and I'm going, what's going on? And the, the I had a wasp builder nest in the air vent on the auxiliary fuel tank. Used to work a lot off my time. Like I had this much endurance and, I, you know, I'd have, have it written on my hand with a pen about, when I had to fuel up, so I just had to look at that, check my time, want to be right. I scrapped that idea and went back to looking at my fuel gauges after that and just kept looking at my fuel gauges. Like I still don't look, check time or do anything. I just keep an eye on my fuel gauges because if, um, if a wasp does build a nest or something's wrong, I had the same machine actually did it to me twice for two distant, different reasons. One was a wasp build a nest in the air vent and the other was when they rebuilt the machine after I'd, wrecked it the first time they didn't put a little spring on the because the air vents actually there's a bit of plastic that comes off your tank and then the air vent is actually strapped to your mast so to keep that bit of um, plastic tube open you put a spring on it so it can still flex and move but cannot get sucked shut um it sucked shut on me <laughs> but i'd gone back to using my fuel gauges and i looked at my fuel gauge and the Main fuel tank was empty and the auxiliary fuel tank was still three quarters full. And I'm going, the auxiliary fuel tank should have already flowed across into my main fuel tank. Something wrong. Landed. Took the, it took a lot of, to screw the cap off the auxiliary fuel tank. And then you just heard it. All the fuel dropped across, fed it, started feeding across into the other fuel tank. And all I did was leave my fuel cap off. <laughs> so tell me about that first time. They're like, what were you doing? Where were you? Yeah, tell me the story of that first. Um, I was actually up in uh, Snowdrop, which is above the Catherine Gorge running Buffalo, and um, I'd picked somebody up and we were flying back to the camp to cook a feed that night when it happened. So I was low on fuel. And you had a passenger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, but we both, like I spread the skids, cut the tar beam off in three places. We hit the ground hard. How high were you when it? When it cut out? Oh, probably 150, 200 metres. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Flying down a bush road on the way back. But, like, I had to, in the end, I ended up having to stretch the auto to get into a clear spot. So I didn't have a lot of rotor RPM by the time I came down from probably 20 feet. Like, we hit the ground very hard. <laughs> but, um, like, they're designed, the skids spread, you know, seats tore forward, you know, yeah, we were on the ground and 
main rotor blades were still spinning and old mate wanted to get out. I can remember saying, no, no, not yet, not yet. Don't get out yet. <laughs> Don't survive this only to get out and get hit by a main rotor blade. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. And so a wasp had built a little nest in an area. What, so what did that do? What did that nest? It blocked up the air vent. So the suction in the tank, like the tank couldn't get air into it to let the fuel down. Oh, so both times it was, those first two times in that machine, it was to do with fuel going from the auxiliary to the main fuel yep. tank, but just the first time it was, it was a wasp. wasp nest. Second time it was the spring that was missing. Yeah. What are the chances? Yeah. Like. Yeah. yeah. Same machine. The same machine um, would have been a lot worse the second time because that had, the second time was at Bullo River and there's a lot of tall timber at Bullo River. Oh, my gosh. And this is why I get. I always think the worst, and I remember when I worked for a helicopter company, I'd watch pilots do their pre-flight checks and they, you know, check the fuel to make sure there's no water in it or yeah. whatever. And then, you know, like, I don't know, move the blades around, blah, blah. And I'm like, but what if there's a bolt loose somewhere? Or like, there could be so many things, but you, you only like the standard check is so, I don't know, I think brief. And I think because I listen to a lot of true crime, I'm like, well, what if someone came in the hangar overnight and like loosened a bolt somewhere? You would never know. Like what if it's under your seat or something? And they're like, well, Steph, like, why are you thinking like that? Yeah. And I'm like, because I'm just paranoid. <laughs> but because yeah. you wouldn't think to go and how would you know there was a wasp nest in there? Like, oh, um, You don't. You don't. But like they've prevented it because they now put gauze over the end of it and zippy toys and, you know, yeah. Like, um, they've, as soon as it happened, all those machines got sorted out straight away. Yeah. They all got checked to make sure that there was gauze over the air vents, um, et cetera, et cetera. Like yeah. it was, it was a quick fix and, and everybody was onto it. Okay. Yeah. You know, like, it, yeah. So we're learning from our, not necessarily mistakes, but we're learning from these experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and like, um, uh, another pilot once said to me, uh, Bill Bright, he said, you know, you're fortunate enough then to have started out with a big bucket of luck. And um, he said, you got to the age you are now because you turned every bit of that luck into experience and now you use your experience to overcome the problems. If you don't start out with a big bucket of luck, things can turn bad for you pretty quick. Now, you're saying Will's at 5,000 hours. Well, he's... He's pretty lucky not to have had a failure by now and he's got the experience to be able to deal with the failure at this time. But if you're unlucky and you have and you have that failure in the first 500 hours, you'll want to be real lucky to get out of it. And that's why I've said I will never be a pilot because I'm just not. Sometimes I drive through a roundabout when I had a manual car and I would forget what gear I was in and then my car would start conking out halfway through the roundabout because I was in too high gear. I'm like, I'm book smart. I'm not life smart. I just wouldn't react in those situations. Like I just, I'd be too slow. I'd be the first one down. Yeah. <laughs> They're not built to fail, those machines. Like most of it is pilot error. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. I would be the first one <laughs> <Yeah>. down. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, yeah. How old are you the first time you had a failure in a machine or an unexpected incident? That was probably 21. So that's pretty early on in your career. Did yeah. you – how do you go about – I mean, obviously, I think on the one hand, that's something really scary and could knock your confidence, take a bit to get over. On the other hand, boys at 21 are like, I'm bulletproof, I'm Superman. Like, did you come out of that being like, nothing can stop me now? Or were you like, 
oh, that was a bit uncomfortable. No, I've never thought I was going to die on a machine. I've just never, that thought's never crossed my mind. I don't think you can let it cross your mind. Like I've had scarier experiences on horses. So. <laughs> <laughs> Were you hesitant to get back in a machine after that first time though? No. Or was it because you understood? Was that first time the one with the wasp? Yeah, yeah. So because you knew what caused it, did that help you, I guess, kind of process? No. Like, right, this was the... They didn't really find out what the problem was for a long time. They've rebuilt the machine and um, and it happened again, but it was on the end of the airstrip at Hallimaster. And, um, so they the, went, were you flying it at the time? No, okay. no, no. Somebody else flew it and they, and they, um, he was actually an engineer with a pilot's license. Um, and because we'd talked about it and I, I said, these were the, this is what happened. Um, as soon as it happened to him, he knew it was go- what was going on and he just, yep, well, he's on the airstrip. He'd went and done a job and he was coming back and he said, oh shit. But he hadn't picked up either that the auxiliary fuel, tank was still full and the main fuel tank was empty he he like back in those days there was a lot of fuel gauges that didn't work in bell 47s it was all time work oh my god but you you worked off your time you knew how much fuel you put in oh this machine usually goes for three hours this goes for two hours 44 it was just why couldn't they just fix the fuel gauge um it was like i think just I don't know. I mean, <laughs> a I lot think, of Bell 47s didn't have you, like, oh didn't have. Oh, my God. I mean, we've all driven a clapped-out Toyota around a station that doesn't have, you know, the windows don't wind down or, you know, there's no speedo or anything um, and you're constantly driving around at zero kilometres an hour. But I would think for a helicopter, an expensive machine that's in the sky, you would want your fuel gauge to be working. Yeah. Shit, even now a lot of people have got dipsticks and they get to a certain period of time, even with the fuel gauges. And they'll still dip. Yeah, I'd you know, be happy to have a backup, but yeah. I'd still want that first. I'd, I'd want all the bits I could have working. You're really inspiring my confidence here. <laughs> yeah, but that was a long time ago. Yeah, okay. You know, talking, like you're going to get some phone calls from yeah, Will. He'll be yeah. like, what have you done? We're talking 30 years ago, yeah. you know, with Bell 47s, and they were old machines then. I bet you most Bell 47 fuel gauges work today. Yeah. yeah. And so – you were obviously put in another machine while they were trying to figure out what was wrong with that one. When you were getting back in another machine, though, you weren't, there wasn't any part of you that was like, God, I hope that doesn't happen again. Like, or you were just like, Oh yeah, whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Where you go. Such a boy. Such a 21 year old boy. <laughs> yeah. No, very lucky. And, um, and probably had a few experiences like that, but then I've had a few experiences where I've run the stuff as well. Yeah, all right. Well, sh- keep sharing. Don't hold back, I guess. Um, like I was at, I was having a you know, same thing out, having a lot of trouble with cattle, and one cow wouldn't turn around, and I took her all the way to the fence, but she had a down horn, and when she sat up, her horn come over my skid, and uh, plucked me out of the sky, hit the ground. I was still going forward at a fair speed and I was pulling back on my cyclic as much as I could, but she, I pulled her off the ground so I was coming, I was coming in. And, um, the nose of my skids hit the ground and peeled away and went back. <laughs> so that released the cow and I've skidded straight through a barbed wire fence. <laughs> so you were, you were too close to the cow. Too close, she, too low. Too low and she managed and to make contact. She sat up to come behind me because the fence was right in front 
which is what I thought she was going to do, but I thought I had her covered. But when her horn went over me skid, yeah, that was, <laughs> that changed the, that changed the outlook of a lot of things. And oh I my reckon. God. If only cattle could listen to this podcast, they'd be like, oh yeah, <laughs> we can get you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a bit unlucky she had a down horn, but I should have noticed that. Yeah. And, and so you walked away from that one. How was the machine after that one? Um, they came and picked it up. Mm. It- how, how do you go explaining that situation to your boss or to someone without getting ripped a new one? Um, you don't. You get ripped. Yeah. <laughs> you get yelled at. And um, John Weymouth was pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was one of those things. Yeah, you know, I think he was used to dealing with us fellas. And, um, yep, and like it was probably, you didn't get no pats on the back. <laughs> you know, like if you saved a machine, you said, yeah, but I saved that one. You were fucking well taught to save the machines. Jesus Christ. Not go out there and wreck them on purpose. Yeah. Like, uh. What do you think is better when you, in these unexpected incidences, as I'm going to keep calling them, when they say like the first couple where you had time and you knew what was happening versus I'm guessing that one with that cow, that all happened very, very quickly and there wasn't like, do you prefer like that? What happened then? Like it all just happens real quickly or that you've, you kind of know it's coming, like, and you've got, I don't know, 30-second head start or something. Um, I think instinct keeps you alive in both situations, you know, instinct and training. I don't think I, – I couldn't separate that thing if, you know, because if you're up high and you've got time, you're still trying to pick the best spot where the wind is, what's going on. If you're low and something like that's happening, it's just instinct, like, do what you can. Make sure, you know, try and get it on the ground without with wrecking it the least that you possibly can. If your first incident was at 21, when was your last one? Uh, about three or four years ago. I went and picked up a uh, spray rig um, that I could borrow from Lonesome Dove and had it, all the spray gear strapped to me skids and stuff and I was bringing it back to Minoroo. And um, the rear seal let go on the R22 and the oil went out over the belts. So, um, yeah, I went to the ground in a hurry, um, got it on the ground, and I'm on a gutter Persia country, so there wasn't a lot of room to get it in. And, like, it, when I hit the ground, I bounced a bit, went to the next <laughs> over the Gilgoy, Landed in like it was sort of black soil, still half wet, and it went right up on its nose. And I thought, if you pull back, then you're going to cut your taliban off. So I sat there and I prayed. <laughs> and so kind of sitting ass up. Yeah, no, it was standing right up on its nose. Yeah. So you're like looking at the ground. Yeah. Through the bubble. Yeah. And I went, it's either going to come back down, and if it comes back down, remember to keep your cyclic foot so you don't cut your taliban off. Or it's going to go straight over the front and my main road is going to hit the ground. She's going to be a mess anyway. But lucky enough, it sat back down on the ground, jumped out, and I was on fire. My muffler was on fire. So I ripped my shirt off, put the fire out, and, like, I'm still annoyed with myself because I must have panicked because I had a towel wrapped up behind my back in my seat that I always used as support for my back. It would have been easier just to grab that towel and put the fire out. 
Not waste a perfectly good shirt. Not waste a perfectly good shirt and get sunburnt for the rest of the day while I was trying people coming to pick me up. Yeah. So with that, let's be honest, I'm, I'm no engineer, but what actually caused them? So there's something about a seal and then oil came out. So was there an engine failure there as well or was it something else that? No, I actually, like I've thought about it a fair bit and I think just where I put the spray rig on, the breather, it kinked the pipe for the breather, therefore pressurised the engine and pushed that seal out. That's what I came up with. Yeah. Um, and then so did the engine conk out after that? No, no, the engine still ran. Like the engine was, I, I had to um, wind my throttle off because all, because the belts were slipping so badly, the power wasn't getting transferred through to my main rotors and stuff oh, anymore because of the oil okay. and stuff on the belts. Okay, so it was kind of like, yeah, a belt. Yeah, it was more, yeah. Of a, more of a belt failure, and that's why I got the fire because the belts were slipping so fast on the on the sheaths that it heated everything up and caught fire. I don't, I think it was the sheath and the belts that made the fire, not the oil coming onto the muffler. That was my opinion, but I could have been wrong. It, it could have been the muffler as well, and the hot oil hitting the muffler and it flared up. But yeah. Now I heard last night. So in amongst all this happening, and you being like, okay, we're going down, or I've got to, you know. How do I do this? You managed to make it a, an emergency call, like a. So, how does that side of things work in a helicopter? Because my understanding is that it went to like Brisbane Airport, and then Brisbane Airport called back home on the station to be like, "Hey, we just got a call for assistance." So, how how do you, in amongst all that time, like, do you actually have to call and say something, or do you just press a button on the helicopter, or what do you? No, I, I made a call to flight service because I was on the uh, Brisbane flight service frequency for this area. Got a call away, hit the ground. Then after once I got everything, it, you know, sorted, landed the fire out. Got back on the radio, um, called up again, and I couldn't get flight service because I was on the ground. Got hold of a jet and said, "Oh, mate, can you relay this message? I'm at this location. The jet's gone. Is it a mater?" I said, "Mate, I just came down and hit the ground." I said everything's all right, but I've I've made a call. Oh yes, that was you. Sorry. Yep. So you're stuck. So I gave them a GPS location, and they must have given it the flight service frequency uh, to Brisbane Centre. Brisbane Centre rung Kath at home here, and um, yeah, I just forget who came out and picked me up. But yeah, Rankin. Yeah, might have been Rankin, but I don't think it was Rankin. Rankin might have flown me out to get it fixed. Oh, I shouldn't forget. I'm sure whoever came to pick you up has never forgotten because you weren't wearing a shirt when they <laughs> yeah, came to yeah. you. So. Yeah, it wouldn't have been the best sort, eh? <laughs> so, because that's the other thing that confuses me whenever I get in a fixed wing, fixed wing aircraft or a helicopter. So you've got like the little kind of internal radio if you guys want to talk to each other, like passenger and pilot, and then they can turn on, then they flick a button and then they're talking to someone else like on the ground, I don't know, someone else or whatever. And then you've got like, because I always, I, when I was um, in a fixed wing with Chris from Kachana Station, I was like, if you like pass out and whatever, and I've got to try and land this plane, which let's be honest, we're all dead. Um, I was like, I don't even know what buttons to press here to be able to call the control tower in Kananara or mm-hmm. anyone like, because I'm like, you hear stories about people and someone in the control tower is like guiding them through how to land the thing. I'm like, I wouldn't even know how to call the buggers. Like, mm-hmm. so how do you? Was that just? Is that quick for you to just? And do you just say, 
you've read Joe and Mayday or like are you like, oh, hi, this is Danny, um, just calling you from the territory, like need a bit of a hand. Like it's such, it's all happening so fast. What are you? Oh, it's just Mayday. Mayday, you know, you call someone um, in this area, you know, and and like all I, I think from memory all I said was uh, Mayday, Mayday, um, engine failure, my call sign, I think it was um, LDW at the time, um, going down and route Lonesome Minoroo. That's about all the time I had to. You know, you don't want to be concentrating on trying to get a radio call away. You just let people know you're going down and then concentrate on getting on the ground without wrecking too much stuff. And so the radio frequency you're on, is it only the mob in Brisbane? That like, Is that their job just to sit there and listen for those calls all day on that channel? Or would if somebody else is mustering around you or, like you said, a jet was flying over, would they pick up that as well? Yeah. Um, flight service frequency is <sighs> – they they control jets. They control that. You know, you, there's different area frequencies. So, I was on the area frequency for Brisbane, and like Brisbane flight control, like you might go another 200 nautical miles or 300 nautical miles south, and that that's control frequency changes. But yeah, like they're still guiding jets, other aeroplanes flying to Nooker or Groot Island or whatever. Um, they're still talking to them and monitoring those. So it's a, yeah, they're sort of guiding people out, you know. Um, it's a bit difficult to explain because the whole area, the whole Australian area is monitored all the time. One person might be monitoring three different or four different areas. I, I haven't sort of been in the control centre to see it. But, you know, different a different frequency means a different area. So yeah. they would have known what area I was in anyway. But for them to hear you on that frequency, like if there'd been somebody just driving, like if I was driving on the ground and had my two-way on scanner or if someone else was, you know, ferrying past in a helicopter, they like it's not like it interrupts there. So they could fly past and be completely oblivious as to what's happened to you because they're not on that frequency because why would you be if you're only going to turn onto that frequency for a mayday call? Yeah, no. Mate, like say, you, say you're working with somebody else in an area – You'll usually be on a VHF channel that you can talk to each other without talking to anybody else. Yeah. So you'll have VHF, uh, you'll have VHF to talk between your machines, UHF to talk to people on the ground, and then you'll have HF. Sometimes you have HF. We used to have HFs in machines all the time to cancel SARS and that sort of stuff, but now we've got sat phones and a lot more telephone coverage. So you don't have you don't, they don't see it does not seem to be as many HFs in machines as what there ever used to be. I don't I can't even remember seeing one in the last ten years actually. And so the the uh, Brisbane control is that on a VHF? VHF, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they they monitor all the time and they guide and listen and because say the mail plane takes off, well they'll have a uh, a track in that they'll have submitted to flight service. Flight service knows that the mail plane's going maybe Mountain Valley, Minoroo. Wangalara, Yukaronage, and he'll make all those calls on the way around and let everybody know on, on 1267, which, you know, 1267 is your aerodrome frequency. So as you're getting close, 10 nautical miles, you'll give an inbound call on 1267. And, you know, that 1267 might cover, well, it'll be, it covers most aerodromes, you know, so you switch to 1267 and he might make the inbound call in a mountain valley, then back on a flight service when he's in between, 10 mile out, back to 
flight uh, 167, give you inbound call again. You know, so everybody around the area, and a lot of times I'll, I'll be on 167 if I'm working around here, and I know the mail plane's coming on a Wednesday. And you, so you can talk to him and go, yeah, no, I'm still working out this side, mate. You're right. Oh, my, there's just so much to it. In each of these eight times, I was going to call up. I mean, I probably still will call this episode like Danny Hayes, the man with nine lives. <laughs> but I'm really, I'm like, but really he's kind of used eight of them, so I really don't want to <laughs> jinx you. Do, have you made an emergency, like made a call in each of those eight times? No. No, Is no, it just like where the first couple it was all just happening too fast to even think about that or? I'm on the wrong frequencies and like you have emergency locator beacons in those machines as well so when you hit the ground they go off like they're an impact emergency oh, locator beacon. okay. So that's originally they weren't in those machines but they've developed them and now every machine basically got them. So yeah, so it doesn't matter even if you hit the ground you don't get a call off. An emergency locator beacon will go off, and straight away that's a monitored. That's yeah, monitored that's by federal government, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. That's like the big versus, say, if you have a spot tracker or something, that's monitored by like the company that produces them. Whereas a emergency locator beacon is like a national center within yeah. the government, like it's like yeah. supersedes everything yeah, else. It's, it's CASA, so yeah, yeah. All right, now I'm not going to make you relive all the trauma of every single eight incidents and as i said that number is not to grow any higher than it already <laughs> is okay we're in agreement on this i'm yeah. sure kath would be very happy if we just keep it it's a nice even number let's yeah. let's yeah, not go yeah. and let's definitely not hit double digits jesus but uh i know there's one other story you wanted to that you're happy to share so uh, i was with tom darcy on malapanya and we were mustering through a gorge hovering along and um my light, my clutch light came on, belts again. I'm thinking, ah, oh, counted to three. Thought, oh, I'm hovering, so I put my head out the door and smelt burning rubber, and I went, oh shit, because there was nowhere to land in that gorge, and just went like turn around and went. And Tom's there looking at me, going, no, no, we we need to hunt. And he looked across at me, and he could just see me, uh, uh-uh, uh, I'm out of here. And he just looked at the light and sat there quietly. <laughs> Oh, was he in the machine with you? Yeah, he was in the machine with me. Oh, my me and, God, that's and, like my worst nightmare. And Tom Darcy, not, he wasn't a little man. Like, he, he was, a, he was a, all the Darcy's a big boys sort of thing anyway. We, I get out there and I'm on the flat and my clutch light's still on. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, might be false alarm. And I put my head out the door like I was only about three feet off the ground. I put my head out the door and the belt spat straight across the flat. And I went, oh, <laughs> snapped the throttle and we went to the ground. But it was only three feet off it anyway sort of thing. And then I had to call up again. On We had HS back then and uh, Kenny Bright come and rescued us, thank Christ. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. so if you hadn't – so you had to stick your head out the door to smell kind of the problem. If you hadn't have seen the light on your dash light up, you would have been – see, this again, this is why I would not be a good pilot because I'd be like, la, 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 look at the pretty birds. Oh, the gorge is so pretty. Like, wow, look, <laughs> look at me flying. <laughs> Meanwhile, my whole dash would be like blinking like hazard lights and mm. I just would be completely oblivious. Like there's so many things that can light up on your dash and you – like that just caught your eye and you – Yeah, uh, they're, they're made so you see them. Oh, my gosh. And I guess is it – you don't. You wouldn't carry spare belts in a machine because I guess if something goes wrong with a belt and you have to land, 
really, even if you had a spare belt and you could change it over, you really shouldn't be flying that machine again, should you, until an engineer's like had a real thorough once yeah. over. No, it's an engineer job. Like it's a, yeah, she's a big job changing your belts. Yeah. But that was just a bad batch of belts that came through. Um, R22, had, uh, Robinson Helicopters had changed their makers or something, you know. So, yeah, it wasn't, it was just one of those things, one of those times. Like it, there was plenty of pilots that had a lot of belts going at the time. Do you remember yeah. what sort of time, like when that was, what year? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just thinking there was a, a friend of mine um, and he went down in 2012 and didn't, didn't survive and that was in Julia Creek and it was they said it was because the belt failed and I'm just wondering if it was one of those. Oh, quite possibly. Oh, you know, just... like, it, yeah. I, I, yeah, I do remember another. In, well, I've had so many incidents with belts that, and like I'm not the only one. Like I, I know um, pilots where the belts have failed. They've gone out, put a brand new set of belts on and then within five hours the next set of belts have failed. So, and they got it on the ground twice in one day. Oh, my oh. <laughs> It's a wonder you get back in one at all. But like you say, you know, that bucket of luck has now transferred into being a bucket of experience. So at least you are able to, and I guess that must really, you know, if anyone listening is taking anything away, particularly pilots, it's that like, it's, an, it's yeah, sometimes there's nothing you can do except get more hours, like you can't be better. I always say this to people when I'm teaching them with a camera. I'm like, you can do all the workshops in the world. You can watch all the videos, all the courses. I can spend all this time with you, but you've just got to get out there and keep taking pictures and it becomes muscle memory. You just learn, you know what to do. And I think like obviously very different, but must be the same with, or, you know, it's like you say that young horse, he just needs a lot of wet saddle pads. Like it doesn't matter how many horse schools you take him to, you just need to do that many kilometers on him. It sounds like yes. you need to do that in a machine. To be good at it, yeah. 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 And um, you like, it's funny, I've talked to a lot of older pilots and I thought I had a lot of hours when I was talking to them and you sort of mention something, they say, oh, don't do that. It'll eventually catch you out. And you go, oh, yeah, I've been doing it for the last two or three years, mate. It hasn't caught me out yet. But it does eventually catch you out. Like that, what they're saying will happen. You will do it just at the wrong time. You know, wind's coming just from the wrong way. And when you get out of you, you go, shit, I will never do that again. You know, like that was close. Like that. And I've been doing that same move for two or three years. And you're going, whew. Um, yeah. Like, <laughs> it will eventually catch you out. Like them old followers. And it's only your experience that'll save you. Yeah. Last night when, you first told me that you've had these eight moments. Um, I was like, oh, my God, how are you still here? And you're like, oh, no, I'm not going to die in a helicopter. I'm, if anything's going to get me, it's going to be electricity, yeah. which was the last thing I was expecting you to say. Yeah. So I thought you might now fill me in on, on why that is the case. Um, yeah. <laughs> because you're on stations and you don't have access to electricians, and um, initially I was just dumb. So, yeah, but like I turn, I've turned power off and like the three times I've been properly hit, um, one was on a roof changing a hot water system element and I turned the power off to the house, but that house had been shifted there and there was actually two sources of power going into the house um, and I didn't realise that. Anyway, 
yeah, I touched it. I'd finished changing the water element and I just touched a bit of steel on the screwdriver and it booted me and it was a two-story house and I stopped rolling like in the gutter basically <laughs> off the top of the roof and I went, oh shit, that hurt. And then I walked around and actually found the second source of power into the house and I'm, and, um, I wrote on the power box under the house that there's another source for the top of the house. <laughs> Could you have checked that somehow? Like, can you use one of those electric fence moldy meter yeah. things? Could you have gone and put it on the hot water system and be like, oh, it's still getting a charge? Yeah. Is, yeah. That, is that what you do now? Um, without a doubt. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> In saying that though, fair enough, because I think there's two, um, meter boxes in my house in town and the other day I was wanting to like I'm quite careful like I need to put up all these pictures on the walls and I was like I don't want to drill into something and hit a wire so I just turned off the power yeah (laughs) and then like put the nail in the wall and then hung it up and then turned the power back on and nothing happened and I was like okay I'm good and I sent a picture to Will and he was like please don't do that ever again (laughs) so you basically I guess we basically just do the same thing so I can't judge you for that uh lucky you didn't fall off the roof yeah, yeah, we was lucky. Like, but, oh, like you just get wild, you know, cause you're thinking, oh shit. Now, like, the last time it happened was, um, like the circuit breaker didn't throw out and I was down at me, down at me water pump and there's water on the ground and water everywhere. And I've just reached down and touched the tin that was covering the pump and it was live. Oh shit. Like I end up rolling uh, mud and shit all over me because I end up going to the ground to get away from it because it grabbed me savagely and and um I rolled out of the water in the mud, turned the pump off and like there wasn't meant to be anything wrong, like the pump had just stopped but the power was still going through it. So I'm thinking, why didn't the circuit breaker throw out? Why didn't this happen? Like I just I'm just wary now. Yeah, wary of power. I've been hit one other time as well and I didn't like it. There's nothing nice about getting hit with power. So that's three times with electricity, eight times in a helicopter. Here I was thinking, oh, if I call this Danny Hayes, the man with nine lives, really you've already used 11 of them. We're <laughs> past these nine lives. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think I can jinx you. <laughs> I, that That brings me to the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is so <laughs> the – you know, you have a propensity to find yourself in some hairy situations, uh, as we just said, 11 times in various situations between helicopters and electricity. <laughs> also, for anyone listening, please, like, learn from this. Turn the generator off. <laughs> Always have someone there watching you or something, you know. Did you have to go to hospital after any of those electricity times? No. You, you didn't go to the local community and get a checkup or anything? No. An ECG or – no? Okay, cool. Mm. Well, that brings me to naturally I have to ask about the saint that stands by your side through all of this and somehow still has a full head of hair and really nice smooth skin and her sanity from what I can tell because I think if I were married to you, I'd probably have ripped out all my hair (laughs) and just have bags under my eyes and not look as amazing as she does. So tell us about Kath. Well, um, oh. Very long story, but she, she turned up at Eva Downs as a Jillaroo years ago. Anyway, I was meant, I was based at Eva Downs the year before and I was meant to actually shift to Wall Hollow. I somehow received information that there was a good looking Jillaroo at Eva Downs. So I called in on my way past because whatever gear I still had was still parked at Eva Downs. Anyway, so I'm landed there 
And Karen Brosnan turns up and says, what are you doing here? Oh, I thought I'd pick my gear up to go to Wall Hollow and have Smoko and say good day. Like, you know, just coming back after the wet. Is that really why you're here? I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, go and have Smoko. Kath turns up. I go, oh, yeah, she is all right. So camped there the night and never left. <laughs> Took a long time to wheel Kath, though. It's pretty. She used to wear things called chinks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like light chaps. Yeah, like But chaps. shorter ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, we called a chinkette. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like I so I never really left. And then I bought horses up because, you know, she was right into horses and that sort of stuff. And, um, and oh, yeah. And I, ha- I was really lucky. I had a good horse called Bodie. And I think Bodie did more of the wheeling than what I actually did in the end of the day. Yeah, she, <laughs> she liked Bode. So, um, yeah, I got lucky. So you never went and ended up being based at Wall Hollow? No. <laughs> Change your plans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Anyway, did, did so you yeah. talk to her at that first smoke though? No. No, <laughs> you no, just I, creepily sat across the room and watched her. Well, yeah, yeah, well, um, the manager's wife and the manager was sort of making sure that I didn't get to say good day. Obviously, yeah. But, um, but they were really good at the end of the day. Like John and Karen were really good about it. And, and, uh, like it, it, it wasn't, it was a slow process. It wasn't, yeah. Was, were people as wary of pilots back then as they are now? Like did pilots have a reputation or, or, where pilots considered, you know, some, you know, in recent years, pilots kind of have this status, like, you know, they're like kind of gods and they're really cool. They're really, <laughs> <laughs> I can already hear my yeah. partner being like, Oh God. Yeah. But you know, like they are kind of really cool and all oh, the pilots here and oh, look at that boy. Were pilots like that back then or were you just another chick kicker? No, we we're pretty cool. <laughs> Okay, let me clarify. Did you think you were pretty cool or did everyone else also think that you were pretty cool? I didn't think I was any different to anybody else, actually. Like, um, my good mates on the ground, um, like Ian Hall was there at the time and he's still a good mate. We sort of, yeah, we made it up at Eva Downs and he was the head stockman and I was a pilot base there. Yeah, like I, I sort of got just as many good mates on the ground as I have in the air. So I never thought I was any different to anybody on the ground. But, yeah, like all young fellas, you think you're pretty cool, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And so how long did it take before you were able to ask Kath out on a date? Oh. Did you actually take her on a date in these days? Yeah, yeah. Would have been six months. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, no. And then then at the end of that year, she went to the States. So I followed her over to the States. <laughs> <sighs> Must have been pretty keen. Anyway, yeah. pilot, because a lot of fellas said, that's like taking sand to the beach. And I'm going, no, 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 it's Kath. I'm going over there, you know. And she's with a cutting horse trainer. So I spent three months in Texas riding around freezing coal, training cutting horses. Did you actually ask her if you could come or you were just like, yeah, cool. I, I booked a well, ticket. We were, I'll come we, we, we were a couple boy then. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we were a couple boy then. So yeah, I followed her over when the season mustering was finished and yeah. Spent Christmas and stuff over there and then came back. And then, yeah, like we, we were sort of, we were, yeah, we, we never changed really after that. I'll be honest. I, I don't even know. I've got a whole list of things to ask you about here, but there's just so much that this might become a, might be a 10 part series. <laughs> Who knows? There's so many more things. I mean, we've covered just 
bits and pieces of your life so far. I'm I'm definitely going to come back out because today we're sitting on Minaroo Station, which we've also learnt that is spelt is it M A I N O R U? Yeah, yeah. I've been putting it. I've been texting people saying M I N E R O O, like Minaroo. <laughs> anyway. I went to Google it the other day and everything just came up with a Mindaroo station. I'm like, no, Minaroo. I'm scrolling down through the pages of search <laughs> results. I'm like, why won't it come up? Uh, because I can't spell it. <laughs> but there is, um, for, yeah, this was just a very, you know, scratching the surface of you. There's so many things, uh, to come back and have a yarn about, particularly as we're sitting on Minaroo station today. And that is something that you and Kath purchased 10 years ago, which is pretty exciting. To buy your own cattle station uh, 10 years ago, so that's 2013-ish. So you bought a cattle station after the live export ban, so in some pretty hard times. Again, pretty pretty interesting to have a yarn about. And there's just you've, – you've done so much between – you're flying over the 30 years. You've been a manager on stations in between. You've done contract mustering. You've done you've, – you've done so many different things that there's no way – yeah. The the more I get into these podcasts, I'm like, I'm not happy to just squish it all into an hour. I just want to – I have to do a 10-part series. I'll do a 10-part series because I don't <laughs> want to miss out on anything. But the as you would know as, as an avid listener, I have to say, do you want to do you want to tell the listeners what you told me at the NTCA Welcome Drinks about when you – about how you don't know how to pause the, the podcast <laughs> and what you have to do? Because <laughs> I, I met Danny for the first time. He's like, oh, my daughter got me onto this podcast and – yeah, <laughs> but I'm not that great with electronic devices and <laughs> I had to keep starting from the start every time I got out and it cancelled. So um, I'm saying, how do you pause it and then I'd lose it and then I'd have to get it reloaded? Uh, it was very upsetting. I, I got really in, into it and then in the, in the end I just, I sort of got to the stage, I'd just sit in the car and listen to the end. <laughs> that I can't tell you how many people I've told that because that just makes my day. I'm like, this delightful man, he came up and told me that like he doesn't know how to pause it so when he gets to a gate, he just sits there and finishes the episode before he gets out to open the gate. I mean, you probably could turn it up really loud. No, you might miss something. Once once you're into the story, it's just too hard to get away. I know. And see, that's why I'd rather do a 10-part series Mm. with you than try and, you know, condense it into one episode and miss out on like – some cracker yarns. Yeah. So, as you would know, as, as a as a listener, I do like to finish all my episodes in the same way. So, in this episode, I guess we've spoken about your childhood, your, I guess, why you're kind of in a way, I guess, oh, I don't know if we touched on it too much, but, you know, friends and family refer to you as an extremist because you don't do anything half ass. And we've kind of touched on that with a bit of your flying and your um, approach to electricity. <laughs> um, <laughs> But looking back on those experiences, particularly, I suppose, flying, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson that you've learned? Um, most things in life seem to take seven to ten years to sort of mature and come about, you know. So if you think you're a good pilot, usually it'll be seven to ten years before that eventuates. It's like training a horse. Like you, Most horses come good at seven, in between seven to ten years old. You know, or seven to ten years training, some will be out to 12 years old before they become good and solid. You can go and rattle 390s on them and that sort of stuff. And it doesn't affect their aptitude for the next run. The same in business, like building a business or doing anything. Like Kath and I have been here 10 years and I think it's only in the last 
three years that things have turned around and started looking good. The rest have been a proper battle. So if you if you can hang in there and keep plugging away at whatever you're doing, don't plan on doing it for three or four years and thinking you're going to be a success. It's usually going to be seven to ten years before anything matures and comes good for you. That's about all I can say.